0: We, by the power of eternal blue heaven, universal Khan of the great Mongol Ulus, our command, if this reaches peoples who have made their submission, let them respect and stand in awe of it. So read the imperial seals of the Mongol great Khans, which marked letters demanding the utter submission of rulers across Eurasia for decades. It is no mean feat to seek the conquest of the world, and few states have ever come as close to the task as the Chinggisid Mongol Empire. In today's episode, we'll explore the Mongols' imperial ideology and how they justified and pursued their conquest of the world. This video is sponsored by Masterworks. The Mongols' story is ultimately a case of climate making or breaking a kingdom. A scenario that could be playing out in Europe today, with energy prices skyrocketing for winter and Britain is expecting their longest ever recession. Now people around the world are scrambling to preserve their wealth. For older generations that may have meant investing in gold or real estate, but stable gold prices and high mortgage rates make this unfavorable. However, there's a third option that Morgan Stanley says often experiences less price volatility than stocks, fine art. A record-breaking art auction earlier this month led CNBC to suggest the global rich still view masterpiece art as a hedge against current inflation and perhaps a safer store of value than increasingly volatile stocks and cryptocurrencies. That's why Masterworks is flooded with demand. They offer shares in contemporary art by the greats, from Banksy to Picasso. This art has outpaced the S&P 500 for the last 26 years, and even as the stock market has fallen over 20% this year, Masterworks sold a painting for a 17.8% net return just a few weeks ago, even since our last video sponsored by them. That brings their last three sales to 17, 21, and 33% net returns to investors. So it's no surprise that demand for Masterworks is so high that there's a waitlist, but you can skip it by clicking the link in the description. Before delving into the Mongol Empire, we'll briefly compare it to earlier nomadic states and their ideologies of which the Mongols were the ultimate students. The Mongols' founding ideology was not one specific to the mind of its founder Chinggis Khan. The earlier nomadic empires based in Mongolia, from the Xiongnu, the Shanbi, the Roran, and the great Turkic Khaganates, all had a similar view of their empires. One of the core tenets was the belief that the ruler and his dynasty were backed by heaven, generally known as Tengri. This made the monarch be they the Chanyu or the Khagan, a sacred figure, this concept is called kut in Turkic. Titles of these rulers often reflected this. During the days of the Uyghur Khaganate, the Uyghur ruler was called Tengri Khagan, the Heavenly Emperor. The idea of a sacral kingship reached an apogee in the Khazar Khaganate, where the Khazar Khagan was a purely ceremonial role, with actual government conducted by his nominal deputy, the Khagan Bey, In the words of Professor Lamsuran Munkadena, the Khazar Khagan reigned but did not rule. This sacred kingship justified the rulership of the Khagan and prohibited the spilling of his blood, but it did not make the Khagan invulnerable, similar to and likely influenced by the Chinese concept of the Mandate of Heaven. Just as Heaven could give its backing to the ruler, so could it rescind it. Tengri's support manifested through military victories, good health, and fortune, while his displeasure resulted in defeats, untimely deaths, disease, and environmental catastrophes. Along with his shamans, the ruler and his people could seek to placate Tengri and the spirits that inhabited the world, but they could not control them. Once the Khan lost Tengri's backing, other members of the dynasty could seize the rulership themselves. These nomadic states were not seen as the sole property of the Khagan, but as jointly owned by the entire royal clan. All members of the family were entitled to grazing lands and peoples within the state to support themselves, and all male members could in theory be entitled to the position of Kagan, though in practice this tended to be restricted to the sons or brothers of the ruling monarch. Thus, a relative with a promising military career who desires to overthrow an inept ruler could be seen as more favored by heaven than the current Kagan. If he usurped the Kagan and was rewarded with more victories, then Tengri's will was confirmed, as was the case with the great Shongnu ruler Modun Chanyu when he killed his own father, or in the Mongol Empire when Munker overthrew the line of his uncle Ugade. By extension, any given prince with enough charisma and military backing could then be a rival to power and a possible claimant. Thus after the fall of the Mongol and Timurid empires, It was possible for even a petty prince such as Babur, the future founder of the Mukhal Empire in India, to lead their own retinues and claim they had the inherent right to sovereignty, accounting for the infamous fragmentation many of these nomadic polities suffered from. What we've highlighted here is the importance of the notion of heavenly support, and how rulership was not based around institutions but on personal charisma. The ability to lead men and convince them heaven supported the given prince. These were just as applicable to the Turkic Khaganates as they were to the Mongol Empire. With that said, we now may focus properly on the state founded by Chinggis Khan in 1206. One of the most well-known aspects of the Mongol Empire was its oft-stated belief in the eventuality of its conquest of the world that eternal blue heaven had granted everything to be overseen by Chinggis Khan and his progeny. But where did this belief come from? It doesn't seem to be present in the earliest days of the Mongolian Empire. Despite it often being said in many a documentary or shoddy YouTube video, there's no evidence that world conquest was on the ticket when the empire was established in 1206. As we will demonstrate here, this was a belief that developed over the early conquests. Like previous Khans and Khagans, Chinggis's enthronement and rule were based on his personal charisma, his ability to convince his followers that he had Kut, the support of heaven, which was manifested in his character and military victories. For this, he presented himself as a sort of shaman, an intermediary with Tengri, who on important occasions would travel on his own to the top of holy mountains like Burk and Khaldun to convene and seek Tengri's blessing to ensure successful campaigns. Sacrifices were overseen, proper methods of slaughter and the appeasement of nature spirits helped consolidate and maintain this good fortune. Publicly engaging in these ceremonial acts ensured that his subjects saw him as a pious monarch, taking part in all the necessary acts of khanship. Chinggis knew not just how to be the Khan, but look the part too. Codifying Mongol laws through the Yasa helped build his image as a lawgiver and almost fatherly figure who oversaw, guided and protected his people, seeking vengeance on their behalf, bringing order and booty in equal measure. Initially, Chinggis's enthronement was overseen by a powerful and charismatic shaman, his stepbrother Kokachu, also known by his title of Tep Tengeri. But when Kokutu's influence grew too great and he began to sow seeds of intrigue between Chinggis and his brothers, Chinggis allowed his youngest brother, Temuge, to break Kokutu's back. While shamans would continue to be necessary to predict good fortune and successful campaigns, they would never again rival the Khan for power. In a sense, it also served to demonstrate that the Khan was more powerful than any shaman, no matter how much that shaman claimed heaven's backing. Importantly, Chinggis was also graced with genuine luck in his timing. A well-known paper published in 2014 by Neil Pedersen et al. showed that after a dry and harsh late 12th century, which exacerbated warfare in the steppes, paleoclimatic data indicates that the first quarter of the 13th century was a period of warm and wet weather, a long period which remains unique in the last thousand years of Mongolian history. The result was more productive grasslands, a boom in animal population, supporting an accompanying baby boom among the Mongols themselves, all coinciding with Chinggis's reign from 1206 to 1227. While this obviously logistically supported the Mongol expansion once this generation grew to fighting age, it had an important legitimizing effect, making it appear heaven's favor of Chinggis Khan was manifesting even in a more beneficial climate. Chinggis Khan effectively embodied every necessary attribute associated with a great leader in the steppes. A strong foundation in Heaven's backing for Chinggisid rule, supported by a genuinely more stable period within Mongolia itself, was a key component for the early Mongol campaigns. The peoples of his homeland fell in line under his rule, and from then on, followed him and his descendants to the ends of the earth. Chinggis Khan never faced rebellion or desertion from these generals. Despite all this, it appears that Chinggis Khan did not envision himself a world emperor, even in the making. His initial title upon his coronation was not the lofty Kagan or Khan of Khans, but rather Chinggis Khan, which likely had no connotations of universal rule, but of a strong, fierce ruler. Though possibly taking the title of Kagan later in life, he never appears to have imagined himself as heir to the earlier Turkic or Uyghur Kaganists. Furthermore, Chinggis Khan did not conduct his campaigns in the manner of his successors. Unlike his sons and grandsons, all of Chinggis's campaigns were only launched after lengthy justifications. Attacks on the Jin dynasty, Karakitai and Tangut kingdoms were conducted only after explaining the causes of war. Jin interference in Mongolia and their murder of one of Chinggis' relations was justification there. The harbouring of steppe rivals were excuses for Karakitai and the Tangut campaigns, and the assault on the Khwarezmian Empire was of course based on the famous Massacre at Otra, followed by Khwarezm Shah Muhammad's murder of Chinggis' envoys and other actions the Mongols perceived as aggressive. Even if these justifications were at times simply pretexts for war, they served an essential diplomatic function. Chinggis Khan imagined himself as a part of the political order, not its master. In such an environment, the Mongol state had to justify its conquests and maintain friendly ties with those he wished to trade with. Initial contacts between the Mongols and Khwarezm had sought to establish economic and trade ties, a mutually beneficial relationship, rather difficult to imagine happening under Chinggis's heirs. Only from the reign of his son Ugudai onwards did the Mongols begin to abandon such lengthy rationales, In favor of conquest for the sake of conquest. There was no need for justifications when the Mongols were inherently masters of the world. So what caused this switch from being members of the political order to becoming the international political order? Much of this can likely be attributed to the very military success the Mongols enjoyed. As Chinggis campaigned across North China up to the borders of India, he was met with victory after victory. The rapid expansion of the Mongol Empire seemed to signal that heaven had not just decreed Chinggis to be master of Mongolia, but of the world too. For how else could such great victories be explained? By the end of his life, Chinggis Khan may well have appeared as a demigod to his people. How much Chinggis personally believed in his destiny to rule the world cannot be known. He certainly did nothing to discourage this belief. It's possible that in the aftermath of the victory over Khwarizm, he adopted the title of Khagan as indicated by his coins dating to this time. But it was his son and successor Ugade, who, as with so much of the Mongol Empire, solidified this. Ugade and his successors paid close attention to crafting an imperial ideology. We know unequivocally that from the start of his reign Ugaday held the title of Khagan, Khan of Khans. Though Chinggis may have suggested it, it was Ugaday who built the imperial capital of Karakorum in Mongolia's Orkon Valley. The Orkon Valley had been the site of the capitals of the Turkic and Uyghur Khaganates and was seen as a place of holy and imperial power. Karakorum itself was situated only a few kilometers away from the ruins of the former capitals, and undoubtedly this was a deliberate effort to associate the Mongols as heirs to those days of great imperial glory. But whereas Chinggis Khan had needed detailed justifications to present his conquests as revenge as per a proper step leader, Ugade had no qualms over this. It is in his reign that the famous letters of submission began to be sent to rulers around the world. One of the first recorded came in 1231 against the Koreans, where their total submission was demanded after the likely murder of a Mongol representative they quickly became standard features of Mongol diplomacy. Whereas Chinggis Khan's initial contacts with the Khwarezm Shahs sought to establish trade relations, no such relationship could exist under Ogedei. Increasingly, the Mongols divided the world into two groups, those who had submitted and those who had not. In Mongolian, this was expressed as ill indicating peace, harmony and submission, three concepts to the Mongols that were intertwined and bulka, meaning rebellion. Within this framework, there was no longer a need to justify military campaigns. For now, all military actions were essentially punitive expeditions to bring rebel forces to heel. Ugade simply advanced notions ongoing during his father's lifetime, and in order to prove his worth as heir, stressed his place as an unassailable master of the world. As this was Tengri's will, Anyone who was not already a subject of the Khan was essentially a blasphemer in open rebellion. As historian Timothy May wrote, the Khan had no allies, only vassals. There was simply no other legitimate power on earth other than the Mongol state. As great Khan Moncure expressed in a letter to King Louis IX of France in the early 1250s, just as there was one god in heaven, so too was there only one ruler on earth and that was the Chinggisid monarch. Ugudei's destruction of the Jin dynasty in 1234 marked the totality of this transition, for following this victory over the Mongols' hated long-time enemy, he could signal his accomplishment over his father with the usurpation of Jin's Mandate of Heaven. Following this, he convened a Kurultai which sent armies in all directions to spread Mongol rule as far as possible. It was on the basis of this Kurultai that Mongol armies drove into Europe by the 1240s. This notion of singular legitimacy was continually reinforced as more and more states either submitted or were destroyed by Mongol armies, each victory further proof of their claim. This worldview provoked awkward diplomatic interactions. A 1249 embassy sent by the King of France, Louis IX, brought gifts and sought to congratulate the Khan Ugude's son Guyuk on his rumored conversion to Christianity. Instead they found Guyuk dead, the regency held by his widow Okul Kaimish who declared the embassy's gifts indicated that the king of France had just submitted to the Mongols. This effectively became a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Mongols recognized no other state other than their own and that Tengri wanted the Chinggisids to rule all other peoples continued victories reinforced this as long as people continued to submit or fall to the mongols then tengri's backing was confirmed and this confirmation fueled their continued expansion to subdue more and more people even the civil wars the mongol empire suffered in the 1260s did nothing to assuage this mongol rules maintained their usual haughtiness in diplomacy each khan proudly referring to his lineage and himself as the king of the world In the Far East, Chinggis Khan's grandson Kublai completed the conquest of China and sent armies on fleets over the horizon to bring ever more distant people under Mongol rule. In the West, on the basis of their right to universal sovereignty, the Ilkhans maintained their desire to crush the Mamluks, a belief which continued right until the fall of the Ilkhanate in the 1330s. The Great Mongol Peace in 1304 saw the Chagatai Khan Dua express that India was the only region the Mongols had left to conquer, a task he hoped all the Khanates would contribute forces to. Until the 18th century, and in some areas even later, descent from Chinggis Khan or families associated with his dynasty remained the preeminent legitimizer in Central Asia. Dynasties like the Timurids had to justify their ascension based on the Chinggisid worldview presenting themselves as protectors and inheritors of Chinggisid claims. Even when the Chinggisids were no longer in power, such as in early Tsarist Russia or Qing China, the Chinggisid lineage continued to be treated with respect, especially for dealing with local peoples for whom the heavenly backing of the Chinggisids had not faded. We're planning more videos on the history of the Mongols, so make sure you are subscribed and have pressed the bell button to see them. Please consider liking, commenting, and sharing. It helps immensely. Our videos would be impossible without our kind patrons and YouTube channel members, whose ranks you can join via the links in the description to know our schedule, get early access to our videos, access our Discord, and much more. This is the Kings and Generals channel, and we will catch you on the next one.